Well, if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, There are certain passages of Scripture which are so very well known that we can quote them from memory. Uh, Certain chapters are monumental in their emphasis. I think about Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You're so familiar with Psalm 23, you know it, its emphasis on the shepherd and the sheep. Isaiah 53 is another one of those chapters, the suffering servant emphasis and how that points to the suffering of Jesus in a prophetic sense. In the New Testament, you have 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is the love chapter of the Bible. You often hear it referenced at weddings and perhaps nowhere else in Scripture is there's such a focus on what agape love looks like. Or Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Fame faith chapter in the Bible. And all of the heroes of the faith who were mentioned there in sort of a rapid fire succession. What a wonderful chapter that is. And then there's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the resurrection chapter of the Bible. 58 verses, the Apostle Paul deals with this great doctrinal subject of the resurrection, both the resurrection of Jesus and then what that means for those who've placed their faith and trust in Jesus and share in his life. There's future resurrection promised for believers, which one day we're going to be given a glorified body, a resurrected body patterned after our Lord's own body. And so Paul deals with this and He talks about resurrection and glorified bodies and how we have victory over death and death has lost its sting and what a wonderful high watermark of Scripture 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is. In the last verse of that text, Paul says, therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your work is not in vain. And you wonder, okay, well, where do we go after that, Paul? I mean, you've scaled the mountain heights of the theological majesty, this doctrinal emphasis of resurrection. We've plumbed the theological depths of what that means. I mean, surely now we just need to sing the doxology and go home, right? Nope. Because here's what Paul says, and you might see, it might seem somewhat out of the blue. His very next statement is this. Now concerning the collection. (laughs) In other words, let's take up an offering. In light of all that we've heard, in light of all that I've shared concerning this great truth of the resurrection, here's how we can get down to business and deal with some practical matters. And by the way, isn't that how it often is with, with doctrinal truth? I think we saw a little bit of this in our study through Revelation, how we studied that book of the Bible not so that we could live with our heads in the clouds, but so that we could have a very real understanding of what the future holds for the children of God. And in that sense, it gives us confidence that we need to live faithfully in the present, to make the most of the here and now. And so it's not coincidental at all, but it's by divine design that the Apostle Paul turns to this practical subject of stewardship here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And he deals with a specific situation that he wanted the Corinthian church to be a part of, and it would involve their giving. They were to give to meet a tangible need, and yet they would receive a blessing 
by being involved in this giving opportunity. So let's read beginning with verse number 1. The Bible says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I want to speak from this subject this morning, the administration of stewardship. Now, I've already told you that that word stewardship is an interesting word. Uh, Whenever you find it translated as such in the New Testament or management, as you'll often see it, it takes a Greek word. The word is oikonomia, which is the same word we get the word economy from. And so economy has to do with administration of resources. And so stewardship then is the administration of resources that ultimately don't belong to us, but belong to someone else. And so the first principle that we looked at a few weeks ago concerning stewardship was what I called the foundational principle of stewardship, that it all belongs to God. All that we have in our possession, God is ultimately the owner. And yet he's entrusted with us time, talents, treasures that he intends for us to carefully manage on his behalf. And we really saw this from that great parable in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents, where a certain master divvied up his his income and, and left a certain measure of income with his servants, and he intended for them to be industrious. They were to do something with what he entrusted them with. And so the principle is, I'm to put to use my time, my talents, and my material possessions and wealth for the sake of the kingdom of God. Uh, That's the demonstration of stewardship. Uh, You heard from Pastor Jonathan last week, and he dealt with the evaluation of stewardship and dealt with that parable from Luke, uh, the parable of the unrighteous manager, and, and the emphasis there on evaluation and putting our resources to use Uh, Again, for the master's sake. Well, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the administration of stewardship, the Apostle Paul is dealing specifically with a situation that required giving on the part of the Corinthians as well as other Gentile believers. And Paul wanted them to give to help meet a need uh, that was really a severe need in the lives of the poor believers in the church at Jerusalem. So we see here really a reflection of Paul's heart. He's wanting to receive this offering, to collect an offering from the Gentile churches who were somewhat wealthy, and and then he wanted to distribute that offering to the poorer saints at Jerusalem who were in dire straits. And so the Corinthians knew that this was Paul's desire. Uh, Evidently, it had been expressed before this letter was written, but they had some questions about how they were to administrate this this task. And so they had asked Paul, evidently, what their part was to be in this collection for the poor saints, and so he responds in a letter and deals specifically with this issue in these four verses here in chapter 16. Now, obviously, he's dealt with other issues uh, in writing to the Corinthian church, but here he zeroes in on his desire for the church Uh, to receive an offering 
that was then going to be distributed to help meet needs at the Jerusalem church. And so these verses are his instructions to the Corinthians concerning their part in giving to the needs of the church. And yet it goes beyond that because while this passage of Scripture deals with a very specific situation in the life of the church at Corinth, I believe here that we can find some principles of giving that sort of transcend each situation and that apply to us even all of these centuries removed from the Corinthian church. So notice a few things about the administration of stewardship from this passage. Number one, notice with me what I'm calling the significant reasons that motivate our giving. There are some significant reasons, I believe, that Paul mentions directly and indirectly that really motivate giving in our hearts as believers. And so, again, he's dealt with this as a very practical subject, and it's not coincidental he's dealing with this in connection with the great marvelous truth of resurrection, the grace of God that has been bestowed upon us that we've personally experienced through faith in Christ. Well, that's something that shows up tangibly in my life. The fact that my hope is in Christ and the fact that my treasure is in heaven, that shows up practically through giving and through serving and through faithfully stewarding all that the Lord has entrusted me with for his sake. And it's really a reflection of the principle that Jesus laid down in Matthew chapter 6 where he said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and, and rust corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. No, lay up for yourselves some treasures in heaven where you don't have to deal with moth and rust and thieves. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so someone says, okay, well, why is giving so important in the Christian life? Well, there are a variety of reasons, but let me tell you, one reason is not this, because God has a need. If you think, well, we give because God has a need, then listen, we, we need to reread our Bible because our God, the Bible says he owns the cattle of the thousand hills. If he had a need, he wouldn't tell us. The fact of the matter is he is perfectly sufficient in himself. He has no need. But we give because we have the need. And it's through giving and through obedience to give that the Holy Spirit does something in our hearts it's part of God's design for our Christian life as he wants to conform us more and more into the image of his own son, Jesus. And so giving really is a reflex of a heart and a life that's been changed by the grace of God. I can't help but want to give when I consider the fact that my God has given so much to me as a means of grace. I don't give in order to gain favor with God. I give because I've already received favor with God through Jesus Christ. And he's been so good to me, and his grace has been so very real in my life, and therefore giving is a way that I reflect his goodness uh, to other people. So this is really an issue of discipleship. But I do believe that Paul gets to some reasons here for why we should give, and these reasons are significant. Now, I'll give you three of these reasons up front, then I'll go back and explain each one, all right? Now, there's a sociological reason, and then there's a theological reason, and then third, there's a doxological reason. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, let me tell you, all right? Number one, the sociological reason for giving involves giving to meet a need in the life of someone else. 
So there's a sociological reason behind Paul's desire to receive this offering from the Corinthian congregation. Notice he says, now concerning the collection for the saints. So he has something in mind that's very basic. If we were to go back into that first century world, we would discover that poverty was a very real issue. Not that it's not in our time, because it very much is a real issue even in our time, but especially in Paul's day, uh, there, there were various means and ways that Greco-Roman society tried to meet need, but, but much of that need was overlooked throughout the Greco-Roman world, and, and even within Judaism, the, the Jews had a system that involved uh, worshipers at local synagogues making contributions, and the leaders of those synagogues would help distribute those financial resources to meet needs in the lives of the community. But still, poverty was a very, very real issue. And in particular, Paul is writing to address a poverty issue among the believers in the church at Jerusalem. And you say, well, why is it that they were so very poor? Well, consider the fact that Jerusalem was a poor city to begin with, but as a pilgrim city, people from all over the empire, Jews, they came during feast seasons, and they would live there and sort of camp out there around the city. And so that would put a real drain on the city's already depleted resources. Uh, many of those Jewish pilgrims who were there at Pentecost, they heard the gospel when Peter was preaching. Uh, they were converted and then they became part of the church as the church was born. Well, guess what happened? Rather than going back home, many of those believers stayed there in the city to be a part of the church. Uh, they needed to grow in their newfound faith. They didn't want to leave that behind in the city, and so they stayed there, which meant that many of those believers in Jerusalem, the disciples and others of Jesus, had to open up their homes and their pocketbooks to help meet need in the lives of these poor Jewish pilgrims that had come from around the rest of the empire. On top of this, you had an issue involving persecution. Many of these Jewish converts who had converted to faith in Jesus Christ, upon conversion, they were faced with the decision of losing their livelihood. They were ostracized from the rest of Jewish society, often banned from synagogues often persecuted because of their faith. And so uh, if you had a business, let's say you came to faith in Jesus Christ, and one way you were targeted, people quit coming to support your business. And so then that would provide a real opportunity for the believers to step up and help meet needs in the life of their own membership. It's one of the reasons why the church was doing what it did in Acts chapter 2, where if anyone had a need and someone else in the fellowship had a possession or a piece of land, Someone like Barnabas would sell that land and then bring the proceeds to the apostles who would then distribute it throughout the fellowship to those who had real financial needs. And so that, that kind of thing could only happen so long because there's only so much land that could be sold and so many material possessions that could be sold. So here you have the apostle Paul on his third missionary journey. He's wanting to take up a collection from those Gentile churches to help support the impoverished believers back in the city of Jerusalem. So there's a sociological reason then that, that, that the Apostle Paul is appealing to. And by the way, this was something that was part of his ministry emphasis going all the way back to his initial commission from God. Uh, when he met with the leadership of the Jerusalem church, 
He writes about this in Galatians chapter 2. He and Barnabas, before they're sent out on their first missionary journey, they meet with with Peter and John and with James, the half-brother of Jesus, who's also the leader of the Jerusalem church. And, and basically, they say, okay, well, we'll focus our ministry efforts among the Jews. You focus your gospel ministry efforts among the Gentiles. And then they say this, only remember the poor. And then Paul says, okay, I will. That's something I'm very eager to do anyway. So there was an element of sociological ministry that accompanied the Apostle Paul everywhere he went. And the early church understood this, that oftentimes when you gave to meet some physical need in the life of a person, though you may be addressing a temporary physical need, yet that action often opens a door for greater spiritual opportunity in the life of a person. You've heard someone say this, you know, people don't care how much we know until they know how much we, what, care? So oftentimes we have opportunity, greater opportunity to address spiritual need in the life of a person by meeting a person's physical need. Now let me, t- let me tell you this, the church is not just called to sociological ministry. If we stop at sociological ministry, then we've missed the point. We're to give to meet need, but ultimately we want to address the bigger need, which is the spiritual need, is to give the gospel. But I'll tell you something, a person who's hungry, you give them something to eat, guess what? You have a greater opportunity to tell them about Jesus and the bread that satisfies. They'll never hunger again. They'll never thirst again because Jesus is living water who will satisfy. You understand how that works? I believe Paul understood how that worked. I believe the early church understood how that worked. So there's this sociological reason for giving. Giving is, is a way that we meet a need tangibly in the life of another person. And that's something that we ought to do. So that's what Paul's writing the church about. Now he's writing 1 Corinthians 16. He's writing on his third missionary journey. He's in the city of Ephesus at this point. He's going to be stopping back by the Corinthian church. And he's going to receive this collection that they've been collecting for the better part of a year. All right, now I want to show you something. Uh, Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 16. Go to Romans chapter 15 for just a moment. Because on his third missionary journey, when Paul gets to Corinth, he, he receives this collection that the Corinthians had been taken up that he writes to them about a year before. But while he's in Corinth, he's going to write another letter. He's going to write the book of Romans. And so in Romans chapter 15, verse 25, notice what he's saying. Now keep in mind, he's writing this letter from Corinth. Having spent time with the Corinthian church, having received their contribution that's going to go to alleviate the need, the sociological need there in Jerusalem. Uh, He says this in verse number 25. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution. Now, Macedonia, Achaia, this represents the region where so many of those Gentile churches were located. Churches like the church in Corinth or the church in Berea. They've been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Now listen to this, verse 27. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, 
they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So there's more going on here than just a sociological reason for giving. No, there's a theological reason. And the theological reason for giving is this. It's a reflection of the character of Jesus Christ in a believer. Notice that Paul is telling the church here, he's writing from Corinth, and he's saying, listen, it was the pleasure of these Corinthian believers to be able to give. It was their delight. These Gentile churches that have, they've taken up this offering to help give, to meet needs there in Jerusalem, it was their delight. And Paul says it was not just their delight, it was also their duty. They took pleasure in being able to give. It's evidence of the grace of God in their life. It's the overflow of God's goodness in their life. But they have obligation here. There's a theological reason here. What is that theological reason? Well, the Gentiles have benefited spiritually from the ministry of the Jews. How have they benefited? Well, think about it. You and I are Gentiles by heritage, not Jewish by heritage, but aren't you grateful that we've been grafted into the family of God? Aren't you grateful that God's covenant promise to Abraham and his descendants, God's brought blessing to the world through Abraham and his descendants? It was through the Jewish people that God revealed his law. Through the Jewish people, to them were committed the oracles of God. You have a copy of the scriptures, the revelation of God himself. He gave that to humanity through Jewish writers. And beyond that, more than that, aren't you grateful for Jesus Christ himself, born of a Jewish maiden, a Jew himself? The Jewish Messiah, we, we have a great deal of gratitude that we're to owe those who were. So here's what Paul is saying. There's a theological reason for this giving. You've benefited spiritually from those in, in Jerusalem. Now it's time for you to sort of pay it forward, to return the favor, but you can bless them materially because they're struggling. They have a need. You've got means. You can help meet that need. But you know something else I think that this theological reason is really appealing to? You know, there was often an issue in the early church, division between Gentile and Jew. You, you see this a lot in the Scripture where oftentimes there was just this tug of war, this back and forth. Sometimes there was this racial animosity that that middle wall of separation has now been torn down in Jesus, and that's something that Paul deals with extensively in the New Testament. But I believe that there's a practical reason now these Gentile believers, he's calling upon them to sacrificially give of their own material resources and be a blessing materially in the lives of their Jewish brothers and sisters. And folks, you want to know what that will do? It will foster greater unity in the church. Here you have what formerly could have been racial division. Now that racial division is no more. And what is done, it's the Spirit of God that's at work in these people. And now you have one ethnic group who they're giving sacrificially and graciously and generously to another ethnic group. People who have differences, come from different cultural backgrounds, look differently, speak different languages, and yet they have a common life that they share in Jesus Christ. And you know what that ought to do? It ought to leave the world scratching its head. 
It's one of the reasons why Acts chapter 2, you see the church sharing graciously, radically, generously among its membership, people from different backgrounds, Jew and Gentile. It's not communism. It's not government forced. The government can't force this kind of thing. You can't force generosity. Generosity is something that's supernaturally produced. Generosity is something that I I can't twist your arm as a pastor. Parents can't twist their arms of, well, they shouldn't twist the arms of their children. That's a poor illustration. Uh, (laughs) They can't make their children. I mean, you can, it's like they'll share their toys, but man, in their heart, they really don't want to. You can't change their heart. I, I can't change your heart. You can't change my heart. Only God is in the business of changing hearts. And this generosity issue is a business of the heart. Giving is an issue of the heart. And so there's this sociological reason for giving. There's this theological reason for giving. And then there's this doxological reason for giving. Now, what does that word mean? It, it means worship. Doxa means worship. Ultimately, Paul wants these Corinthian believers to know that giving is a matter of worship. Goes beyond the sociological issue. Goes beyond the theological issue just because it's right and true and ought to be so. But it gets to the heart of the issue that giving is an issue of the heart. It's it's worship. You say, well, where do you see that? Well, go back to 1 Corinthians 16 and look at what Paul goes on to say here. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So there's, there's their obligation. Now listen to this. On the first day of every week. Now here I think there's an indirect reference to the doxological reason for giving. What's the first day of the week? It's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. It's the day that the church had set aside to come together for corporate worship goes all the way back to John chapter 20. You see this pattern. Even after Pentecost, the disciples of Jesus, they get together on the first day of the week because that was the day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. They come together for corporate worship. They come together to be with one another in the corporate sense. And so there's this this New Testament idea that believers belong to a local fellowship, which they're a part of. And belonging to a local fellowship, which is a family of faith, with every family comes responsibility. And yet giving is more than just an issue of our responsibility to the family. Giving is connected to our worship. It's a spiritual issue. So there's a There's a real doxological reason here. Now, I want you to to see something with me. Notice he says on the first day of every week, each of you is to lay something aside and store it up. That word store it up, that phrase there, translates a Greek word, thesaurizo. It's the same word we get the word thesaurus from. All right, you you students in the room, you know what a thesaurus is. You write papers, you've got to use a thesaurus. I write sermons, and I like to alliterate my sermon points. A thesaurus is right there beside my Bible on my desk. What's a thesaurus? A thesaurus is a treasury of words, Uh, synonyms, 
A word, if you want to find a word that means the same thing as another word, go to the thesaurus and see what the thesaurus, it's a treasury of words. That's the idea here. So Paul is saying uh, to the church on the first day of every week, each of you is to lay something aside in the thesaurizo. Now here's something interesting. Uh, throughout the first century world, and especially the pagan world. This is something that the Corinthians would have been familiar with. Every city had its temple to its patron god or its deity. And often in the first century world, and even before that, those pagan temples, uh, in those temples was something known as the Thessarizzo. It was the treasury box so that when those worshipers came to those pagan temples, they would put some type of monetary contribution in the Thessarizzo, the treasury box. And it got to be such a popular custom that eventually those pagan temples sort of become some of the largest banks throughout the first century world. Okay, so it could very well be that the Apostle Paul is maybe, maybe using that kind of language here, reminding the church that when you come together for worship on the first day of the week, each of you is to lay something aside in the common treasury that you have as a, as a local church. That as a congregation, you're all involved in this, and this is going to be your contribution. You're coming together to help meet needs in the life of the church through your common contribution. So he's connecting this with worship. <laughs> now listen, I love to sing, and singing is worship, but that's not the only way we worship. I love to preach. Preaching is worship. Responding uh, to work God's word, this ought to be central in the life of every corporate worship service, but this is not the only way we worship. You know that giving is also an important way we worship. And it's a reflection of our dependence upon the grace of God. It's a reflection of our gratitude to the goodness of God and the generosity of God. You know that our God is always giving, isn't he? There's not a split second when he quits giving. He is always giving. If he weren't giving, we wouldn't exist. He's upholding all things by his sovereign word of power. He's always giving, always giving, always giving. And as those who've come to possess his nature and we share in his life, giving is a way that we reflect that we belong to our heavenly father. Now, I've got to rush ahead. Those are simply the significant reasons for giving. Paul has something to say here about the systematic regularity that should mark our giving. He says on the first day of every week. Again, that's the Lord's day. I think on the first day of every week, there's a weekly reminder that we're stewards of all that we have, and that's really what the offering's intended to be in a corporate worship service. It's an opportunity for us to give. It's an opportunity for us to help give and be responsible. If you're a member of this faith family, this faith family does have needs. And every member of this faith family has responsibility here. So he doesn't just emphasize the systematic regularity here, but he mentions the solemn responsibility of giving. He says each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper or as God has prospered him so that there will be no collecting when I come. Each member of the church had responsibility in this matter. Now here's the thing. Not all can give the same amount, but all can give some amount. 
not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice. And I believe the principles laid down in this text, if you have benefited spiritually from the ministry of your local church, you've got a responsibility to help contribute financially to the needs of your local church. Have you benefited spiritually from the ministry of your local church? You think about your Sunday school teacher and the curriculum and books and opportunities that are afforded in children's ministry and Awana on Wednesday nights, the ministry of pastoral staff and leadership, the fact that when it's cold, we get to come and have worship in a nice, warm worship center. And when it's hot, we can come worship in an air-conditioned worship center. Now, we appreciate those kinds of things, don't we? I'm grateful for it. And you know what? That kind of stuff doesn't just pay itself. No, we have to all chip in. And then what can we do collectively by way of ministry to touch needs around the world? I think about the ways that our cooperative program monies go to work throughout our convention. And 7% of our total receipts goes to support the cooperative program. You heard Dr. Paul Chitwood a few weeks ago tell you that Green Street's been one of the leading churches in SBC life when it comes to Lottie Moon missions giving. It's amazing at the generosity that this church family has shown and how you're such a generous, generous people. I think about needs in our own local community. What can we do to be better stewards with what God has entrusted us with so that we can make an impact that's eternal in the lives of people. And so keep that in mind concerning this collection. And thank God for the principles that we find here in his word. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? We'll close out this emphasis on stewardship next week from 2 Corinthians and Paul's follow-up letter to the church. But basically, he's going to deal with the motivation of giving, and, and he's going to deal with it in that text, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and he's saying that Jesus and his sacrifice is the ultimate motivation behind our giving. That though he was rich in every way, he became poor. That you, that you, through his suffering, through his sacrifice, who were poor, might be made rich. It's a gracious exchange, isn't it? That's the gospel. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Lord, with grateful hearts, we're so grateful for the goodness of God in our lives. Lord, we don't want to miss opportunities to meet needs where they arise. Lord, whether that be financial obligation to this local fellowship as members of this local faith family, or even individual need that we encounter as we live out our lives. Like the parable of the Good Samaritan who saw someone beaten and battered and laying in a ditch, stopped to meet the need because he had means and he had opportunity. Lord, may we so demonstrate that same measure of grace. And in so doing, Lord, it's merely the life of God in us and the risen Christ who's at work in our lives loving people in Jesus' name and pointing people to the hope that we have in Him. God, we are literally surrounded by an ocean of need. Such deep spiritual need, Lord, in our city. And even on market weekend, Lord, I think about how that need is so pronounced and how there's such a 
such an extreme. Lord, how there are wealthy, wealthy people in our city. And at the same time, there are people that don't have two nickels to rub together. Lord, many who have need, who are lost without Christ, struggling. Oh God, what can we do to help meet that need, be it sociological, but more important than that, theological, doxological. Oh God, use us to be your witnesses, to be your hands, to be your feet. In Jesus' name, amen.